It is Saturday, the 23rd of May, 2020. My name is Jeremy Medlin, and welcome to episode 86 of the Stock Market Movers podcast. Just a quick reminder that nothing that I say today should be considered financial advice, and if you're looking for financial advice, I recommend that you speak to an authorised financial advisor. In this episode, I interview regular guest Matt Joss. We're on the phone from between Auckland and Sydney, so as always with phone conversations, especially at the moment, there might be some issues with quality, so forgive us there. We talk about COVID-19, the general stock market, we talk about A2 Milk and Pushpay, and we also talk about the new fund that Matt is launching in Australia. So let's pick up the recording where it starts. Right, so I've got regular podcast guest Matt Joss. I think this will be... What is it, Matt? Maybe the third or fourth time we've had you on the podcast now? I think the yeah, last something, was somewhere around there, history, I think. wasn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. on episode 71, where we talked about the bushfires, coronavirus, push pay, and, and Tesla. I mean, we've sort of forgotten about the bushfires now, but the coronavirus has certainly happened since then. Yeah, absolutely. Was, um, I just list, went back and listened to some of our chat from the time. And yeah, it's, I don't know, it's crazy to think of bushfires as such a huge... Um, I don't know, huge challenge at the time and just been completely eclipsed. Not that they went away or any of the damage went away. Yeah, what? Completely eclipsed. We didn't even hear about the bushfires in New Zealand. What, what happened to them? It was such a big deal at the time. Everyone was everywhere on Facebook. It was international news. Mm-hmm. What was the result of those? Um, yeah, pretty much just all the same devastation you'd seen. I guess there was um, some big uh, rainfall that came uh, that helped... Um, get it all under control and then just the change in the seasons and you know a lot of hard work from a lot of volunteer firefighters and, and firefighters but yeah got it under control it was it was um i guess it's it's one of those things like it, it had built up for many years before there right where there maybe arguably hadn't been enough forest clearing whatever else they burned through a lot of that fuel um and then combined with the change in the weather and uh and a lot of under control um but yeah i guess it was something that we were already thinking kind of coming into Feb that it was going to have a pretty um, negative impact on the economy. And then we've obviously been just completely outweighed by it to the point where even in Australia, I don't think um, it gets nearly as much attention now because all the focus obviously is coronavirus shutdown and hasn't been as big of a shutdown as it uh, as you guys have had in New Zealand, but a similar level, I'd say. And uh, yeah, interesting Could time. It'll be crazy if in like three months' time we're talking about something that's just completely eclipsed the COVID-19. Yeah, like, not a... <laughs> and then some meme gonna, on... Yeah. It's just going to level up throughout the year, like uh-huh. bushfires, that's not really something we talk about anymore. Then in three months' time, COVID-19 mm-hmm. was something that we don't even talk about anymore. Um, I remember yeah. back at the time, I sort of... My opinion was that it wasn't really a big deal. I felt it was mm-hmm. just... You know, because I sort of get a bit desensitized to what happens in the media because everything is so sensational you're just moving from one sensational story to the next and I thought and I give you credit actually because you were telling me that it's a a big deal and I was sort of like yeah whatever pretty much it'll just blow over like everything else um and you know had I had I known I guess would have done things differently but you know you you had a different view at the time I remember you telling me yeah, it was, um, I guess I started off kind of in January. By the time we were talking in Feb um, 8th, I think it was, was already thinking it was fairly like a lot more serious than SARS. I think the, the challenge is a lot of, um, we tend to just look to the most recent example of something when we try and think what something is. And we're 
have kind of that recency bias and just try and use an analogy of something in the past, whereas this was completely unprecedented. I think when we last talked, though, I wasn't, I was thinking China would get it under control. Um, and it was only in later Feb that I realized it was out of control. And yeah, there was some time there in late Feb, I think we were, we were chatting, uh, obviously not on the podcast then, but um, where it had, it had like clearly broken outside of China. It was like the weekend of the 23rd or 24th of Feb. Uh, was in Italy and uh, South Korea. And at the same time, the market was only like a couple of days off all-time highs. Like the market had just been completely discounting any threat from it, thinking it would be like SARS. And uh, yeah, obviously that started to change pretty quickly in late Feb and then pretty aggressively in March as the market uh, went into panic mode. Um, I think the big difference is not just that the virus itself, it's a, it's a shutdown in economic effects because that's not something we've ever seen. If you look even... You know, during war, the economy doesn't just stop. Uh, the economy, you know, would probably be producing even more, be producing tanks and bombs and mm. whatever else. But you've never had this occur before where the economy just stops like that. Well, that that's it. I mean, even say just using Kathmandu as an example, because that's been quite public. At least during the financial crisis, they were able to generate some revenue. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas during this period, it's just a complete shutdown of revenue, and it's astonishing to me how quickly some companies just became insolvent. Like for, say, in New Zealand, it was literally 10 days and they were insolvent. Yeah. You know, yeah, um, they, would, they would be insolvent if the government weren't able to, to step in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that for, I guess, all of our society for quite a long time has been built with a big goal of efficiency. Like if you study business or do an MBA or whatever else, it's all about efficiency. And this is for like the last 100 years, it was kind of the mantra of like a factory, you're trying to strip out any waste of any kind. Um, and that has its value for sure. But the challenge when you make that something extremely efficient for a particular process is it's not really resilient to anything else that can happen. Mm. So you're like very finely tuned for the world that currently exists. And if anything comes along to disturb that, it can kind of the whole system has like a heart attack. So, you know, just in time shipping, a lot of... Um, a lot of manufacturers only produce something, you know, with all the materials arrive to produce it literally just, just in time. They get it as close to um, the moment that they need it as possible. They don't hold inventory like back in the old days. And that, that makes everything a bit more efficient. But it means when you have a crisis, you can't really handle any deviation from the norm or what you're used to, I guess, the base case. So, yeah. Yeah, I heard something crazy on that just as an example, I think when, if you buy an iPhone, the chances are it's been made a couple of days earlier. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. But yeah, the whole world is geared that way and everything flows in this very intricate dance of capitalism. And um, yeah, we just had a, something come along. We just put a big uh, stop sign in front of it and then um, it's just kind of a big pile up. So I kind of think about some of the dynamics as um, kind of like traffic where there's you know, one car slams on the brakes and then there's potentially a big pileup behind. Um, but it's also, when we start to restart, I think that's an interesting dynamic because you can, just little, if little, if things don't flow correctly in like the right order, you can't restart. It takes a while to build back up, I guess is what I'm saying, to the same kind of tempo we're at before because everything's so dependent on everything else. Um, you, you know, you need the factories to start before you can start the retail shops. You need this to start before that. And yeah, it becomes a pretty interesting um, work to get it going. Yeah, I mean, I guess in the case of Air New Zealand as well, um, 
their capital allocation policy was similar to what you described. They were basically not retaining any earnings mm-hmm. and just paying all, all their earnings out in dividends. And when the, I guess, the stop sign appeared, there was no retained earnings to fall back on. Yeah. I, yeah, I, it's I, an interesting... I, yeah, I think it's very common... Um, I'm not super familiar with New Zealand's um, balance sheet going into it, but it's definitely the U.S. airlines are probably even even worse because they saddled up with a huge amount of debt and did a lot of stock buybacks so that they got all the capital out of the company. But I don't know it's an interesting one. I read an interesting piece which was kind of making a case that that was actually the best thing they could do for their shareholders because um, eventually there'd be a crisis and they figured that if they figured they'd be bailed out of it, then the best thing to do would be just to try and get all the cash out of there. First, which isn't uh, isn't very good for society, but maybe that's what they're part of their yeah, thinking was. I, I I'd probably almost uh, agree with that in some ways. If you know you're going to get bailed out by the government, then it's, yeah. it's it's better to have yourself have all that money returned as much money as possible returned to shareholders during mm-hmm. when when times are good, and then mm-hmm. at least that money is not going to be what's burnt through when the crisis happens. Um, yeah, that's pretty much how they think about it. I think I think this is a good example of where we need to create some better, like resilient structures to handle this stuff, so that it's not just magic money printing um, to do it. Maybe so if your industry is super cyclical and always being bailed out, maybe you should have to pay some kind of insurance into some some controlled kind of like a kind of like a tax, but basically insurance. And then well, that gets run down during these times, or something like that. After the financial crisis, that's essentially what happened, right? Banks, and especially in the United States, suddenly had more stringent capital requirements to, you know, not not eliminate, yeah. but decrease the chances of anything like that happening again. And I wouldn't mm-hmm. be surprised. And the governments, in my view, will be well within their rights to do it. Like the New Zealand government, mm-hmm. if, if it were to take convert its debt position into equity, for example, would be well within its rights to say, look, this is how you're going to allocate your capital going forward. Um, yeah. And I wouldn't I think that, with it either. Yeah, yeah I, th- I kind of like the approach of um, yeah, of some kind of way where it's not not like punishing, not like saying that buybacks or dividends are immoral or anything, but pro- creating like a structural way to deal with it. So as you said, like the banks in the US, actually even going back before then, or more recently in Australia, to, to stop bank runs, the gov- central government basically guarantees um, that you know the money's there, and they do that via a like deposit guarantee scheme. So the banks pay a small amount of money for um, everyone who has deposits, and that goes towards you know government funding of this guarantee. So the government kind of gets paid for the fact that they're being the, the lender of last resort or whatever else, and guaranteeing the whole system. Um, and that's what stopped bank runs basically for the last hundred years because they used to happen. That's why we had the Great Depression. We don't really have it anymore because people know, although the money might not be there in the bank, they know the government will guarantee it and, and make it there. So, yeah, um, I think that that would be a good potential solution to stop some of the moral hazards that we could be seeing. What I thought, just when you mentioned dividends and share buybacks not being immoral there, the sort of, the, the media coverage of buybacks, in my opinion, is just so illogical and uninformed, <laughs> yeah. you know, like yeah. that the, they'll have this big thing against buybacks, but they won't, they'll just ignore dividends. <laughs> and when, it, when yeah. they're essentially the two different ways of returning the same capital to shareholders. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's just something that's misunderstood, and when something's misunderstood, it can, it's easy to villainize, um, and that's exactly what happens. So, yeah, I, I don't think there's much difference between the two. No, exactly. Um, so moving moving forward, then, I mean, in terms of, I guess, strategy and and this type of environment, I mean with the investing world so changed, is there anything that you're doing differently or is it more of the more of the same for you? I guess it emphasizes a lot of um, what we're looking for anyway because I'm kind of, although I invest in high growth businesses, I'm quite kind of risk averse as an investor. So I'm trying to figure out all this kind of stuff that can go wrong and eliminate it. So basically for the last, you know, five, 10 years, I've, I've been thinking how our businesses would handle a recession and trying to find businesses that would do um, do okay or do better throughout it. So definitely a trade I've been looking for for a while. I guess this brings it into sharp relief and something you think about more urgently. Um, mm. So for me, kind of the two things that get brought more to the fore is like resilience, um, as I was talking about before, and in companies where this is like bringing forward the adoption curve. So I think a lot about S-curves and adoption of new technologies and product and I to define what this, you mean by adoption curve, just for those that yeah, so yeah, absolutely. So, and basically, when a new new product or way of doing things or service or whatever comes out, there's kind of this curve of adoption. So, um, kind of like if you imagine like a normal distribution curve, I guess that a, a kind of curve starts off very small, where only the early adopters um, are, are interested to try it out. And then over time, more people try it. So you think of a new gadget, there's like a few geeks that try it out at first, um, and it's not really that widespread. And then over time, more and more people start to adopt it. And then at some point, it tips into like the majority of people, and it becomes like a household name. So you can think about this with any like social network or something, right? Like Instagram at one point was only used by a few kind of photographers, actually. And then it started tipping over and got into like college students and whatever else. And before you know it, it's like billions of people. Um, so I think a lot about that because it can be it's basically quite a slow start and mm. then quite exponential growth. And I think that that's where I like those because I think the market can misunderstand um, how fast that change can happen. But uh, yes, yeah, so we've seen like a virus to use a poor analogy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, correct, correct. Slow growth. Um, but yeah, so we've seen this compress a lot of adoption. Because some, some things happen quickly, some happen fairly slowly. I think in the U.S., um, penetration of e-commerce as a percentage of total retail took like, I want to say, 15 years to go from a few percent to 16%. And then in the last month, it jumped like another 10% or something. So like, you know, a month, six weeks did more than like 20 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, that that is a really interesting uh, change and that's where I'm, I'm kind of looking for more opportunities is what is being brought forward in terms of adoption. Um, obviously, a lot of online and, and software stuff could be there. Um, yeah, and then just avoid trying to avoid all the the mine, the mine, the mine landmines that are out there because I think a lot of companies also um, will report some pretty bad numbers if they aren't able to continue growing during this period and just trying to make sure that we're not paying like pre-COVID prices if the businesses not on the same track that it was. So what what do you make of the, and this is a question I see pop up all everywhere online, I mean, if I'd said to you in February that we're going to have a 
massive shutdown of the global economy like we have, would you anticipate being where we are in the stock market right now? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I, I guess I could see in late Feb quite clearly the negative impacts, but I think that the um, kind of ferocity of intervention was bigger than I was expecting. I guess the lockdowns are bigger. I was kind of expecting more of a natural lockdown, you could say. I didn't, I didn't realize the West would be able to um, pull it off uh, as well as what happened in China, the completely like lockdown society. So we kind of expecting to lock, lock the country down. Yeah, right? exactly. I kind of thought it'd be, exactly. I thought it'd be self-directed people worried about their house. They just stopped going out. And I don't think the two would be radically different. Like I think both would be quite bad um, in terms of the economy. So I don't think it's a huge difference there. But um, yeah, I think the speed and the, the size of interventions was stunning because in February, I was like, I was thinking Australia should shut the border. And I shared that view kind of privately and people like, oh, you know, it's impossible. And I even messaged some some of the health officials like who had come out publicly saying that we couldn't, like, why not? Then I did like a tweet storm about it. Uh, but it was a very like counter um, consensus view at the time uh, just to do that. And the view, I mean, it was just bizarre how quickly it changed, I guess, because within a couple of weeks, not only... I was mm-hmm. wrong all the way through that. I, I, everything happened that I didn't think would happen. It was like yeah. New Zealand was like, we're talking about shutting down the border. I'm like, that's crazy. Then it's like, we're talking about shutting down schools. I'm like, that's crazy. Then it was like, we're talking about <laughs> shutting down restaurants. I'm like, that's crazy. And then next minute, we shut down the whole country. And I'm like, that's crazy. And I, I yeah. was like, not expecting any of it to happen. And it, it all of it happened. And then mm-hmm. I, I, I was, I had to say, privately, I was very against it. I thought it was... Um, an overreaction, and then when the virus got into that rest home in Christchurch, and it pretty mm-hmm. uh, this sounds like a really bad way of saying it, that it, it did a real number on that rest home in Christchurch. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, thank God we closed everything down because if that got, you know, one rest home is not really too different to another. If that got into yeah. multiple rest homes, then we'd have a very, you know, serious yeah. <laughs> situation on our hands. Um, so yeah, I was I, I sort of, you know, I guess. I was, I was happy to admit that I was, I was wrong all the way through. Yeah, but it, um, I mean, it's just stunning how fast the world changed, right? Because in February, uh, when I was thinking about this, they, you know, the um, Scott Morrison government and Australia was still talking about balanced budget. And it's just like bizarre world. Um, and now, you know, and I think when I did my tweets on my pitch that there should be, after we close the borders, we should do like domestic tourism stimulus, $500 a person. And that seemed like a very crazy thing to pitch, basically. And what and I was like, oh, it's kind of so like... is that five hundred dollars per person has to be spent on tourism? Yeah, that was that was my that was my pitch basically. Five hundred dollars have to spend on domestic tourism, which I still think they should do, and I think that'd be a good way to stimulate that because basically, if you just shut the border early, and I think if we'd shut the borders even earlier, we wouldn't have had to shut down the economy at all, right? Mm-hmm. So if we'd shut down the border completely in February, you wouldn't have to have any other shutdown, and all you would lose is international tourism, which is big but in australia it's only a couple percent of gdp directly and um you can make it up with more domestic tourism so anyway they didn't, didn't know what i'm saying i'm not influential enough here um but there's, there's the size of um stimulus is what i was getting to is just massive so the, obviously the yep. job keeper programs here um somewhere in new zealand and in the u.s um it's almost as i think stimulus wise it's like comparable to World War Two, like compressed into and yeah. like six months. They clearly um, learned so, from the financial crisis, eh, in terms of how 100%. to 
Yeah. Yeah, and then um, just a lot of political will to, to I think the, the size of unemployment is just um, stunning. So I think that, that combo uh, has meant that you know how these two forces against each other, which is like very serious economic impact um, going up against very unprecedentedly huge stimulus. And the market at the moment is leaning towards the stimulus kind of winning. I My view is I don't really, I don't invest in the market, right? I'm not a passive investor, I invest mm. in businesses. And so I just focus all my time on the businesses and I try not to um, try to get too distracted trying to pick the market. Because to me, if I can find a business that can, you know, compound its value throughout this, then it doesn't really matter too much what the market's doing. Um, as yep. long as I can buy it at a good price, um, which is, I still think there's plenty of opportunities to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I, mean, I guess the, the concerning thing for me just on this topic still is even though I, I think the, the government was correct in New Zealand to, to do what they did, especially mm-hmm. to, to get things under control. And I think what what, what really has impressed me is you can argue about whether they were right or wrong and everything like that, but I don't think anyone could argue that they haven't done their best to be transparent over here. Um mm-hmm. The way they've communicated, and the way you know these daily one o'clock press events—it was almost yeah. like a national thing to tune in at one o'clock and and watch mm-hmm. them. Um, and I think they've been really transparent, and they have been very decisive mm-hmm. um, in terms. I of think that's key. Taking action, and you can disagree and argue about whether it was the right or wrong thing. And certainly, there's probably some things they would have done differently in retrospect, but they did act, act decisively. The concerning thing for me now is that. I think it's almost as the facts sort of change and as new things, new information becomes available, it sort of seems like they're stuck on a course that might be difficult for them to change now. And I I sort of worry about the long-term impacts of the rest of the world essentially having COVID-19, New Zealand not having COVID-19, and the border being closed. Because I know you can talk about domestic tourism and everything like that, but Say me travelling to, I don't know, Taupo for the weekend, for example, you know, I might eat out at a restaurant one night, I might do one tourism thing, but I'm not going to spend the 20 grand on my holiday that a Chinese once in a lifetime tourist might. Yeah. You know you know I what I mean? Yeah. And, and, yeah. And that's just like one impact of it, and that just has so many flow-on impacts. And I, I just worry about, you know, what are, what are we going to do and in five years' time if there's still COVID-19 in the world, you know? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think, so in the meantime, I think New Zealand Australia are extremely well-positioned because in a few weeks we could have, and maybe New Zealand already has, like a completely eradicated um, the virus. And I know that everyone's been super cautious to say that, but no new cases for a couple of days and 35 active cases in New Zealand. Um, it's definitely on that track. And if you do that, you could just go back to normal like very, very quickly. Like you um, open everything up again would be my move. I don't know if yep. they would do this politically, but that would be my move for sure is open everything up and have like a big party and try and stimulate the heck out of it. And just yeah, I reckon they should, you know, you know, and like big, you know, they should do like New Year's Eve fireworks on the... Yeah, like exactly. Yeah. Exactly, 100%. Huge, have a huge, huge yeah, yeah, celebration. Yeah. Like I went for a walk when Level 3 was announced around Auckland. There were some people letting off fireworks. And I think they, they, they should have a huge party. It would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, but to your point, it, I think I think what we'll see is green zones and red zones. So I think Australia and New Zealand will become a green zone where 
will open up travel between each other and that will be quite stimulative. I think some other countries could join that, maybe even China, like they've potentially eliminated it, but definitely some other Southeast Asian countries. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the tricky part will be depending if we get a vaccine. So America, will, for instance, will be in a very tricky position of constantly opening and shutting to try and like manage it. It's, um, the virus as it spreads, but it, it doesn't seem to me like it's just going to be way past the potential to eradicate it, which means eventually like a very large number of um, uh, people will have it. Um, and they're just trying to manage it and get treatments to reduce impacts and stuff like that. But yeah, it does become pretty interesting in a couple of years. If we, um, if we can't get a vaccine, then at some point we have to consider how we reopen. I think there are some other intermediate steps that we could do rapid testing at the border uh, before you like fly to New Zealand, so at point of departure, and then when you arrive with a, like a very short isolation period, like a day or something like that, if you can have a rapid test, um, then that could that could allow you to get back into it and get uh, things going um, without yeah, having to... Yeah, because for me, it's just effect. not a long-term option to have the border closed for any material length of time. Like, I think this sounds bad, but that would be worse than having the virus. And, and, it's tricky, right. yeah. You, get, you start getting into pretty... Basically, I think the, so New Zealand's in a good position because it reacted pretty quickly, and um, same with Australia. The longer that you... Surrounded by water. Yeah, that too. The longer that you leave it, the less... Um, the harder your decisions become. So um, because New Zealand's in a good position, I think there's a way to open and do that testing without, without having to have that trade-off. Um, and the long, the worse that you manage things, then you have to have those trade-offs of, um, yeah, trading health for economy, and yeah, it gets pretty messy there. Mm. Yeah, interesting stuff. So, you wrote an article. Just yes. put it up in front of my my screen here. It's titled "A2 Milk: The Story of a 2,200% Monster Next Door." Um, <laughs> that was what released just the other day, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. So I've held AT Milk since uh, 2015 um, uh, as a, a personal investment of mine. And it's it kind of, I, I, I talked a bit before about um, companies that I call monsters. So it's basically companies that have the ability to compound high returns on invested capital for a very long time. And then that therefore delivers um, some very outsized returns. If you can find it, it's not, not easy by any means as I outlined in the article. Um, can be very hard to hold on to them because that you have to hold on during the peaks and drawdowns and it can be up to a year or more where they're below their all-time high, etc. But that is, I think that drives a lot of share market returns and I think trying to find those really um, exemplifies like my strategy and approach to investing is coming from a value investing background but trying to find the big dominant businesses of tomorrow while they're still small um, so yeah, AT Milk's a, I think a really interesting, just a great example of that because it's such a simple story as well. Like it wasn't some, I don't know, re- you know, revolutionary technology um, that no one had ever heard of. That 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 one. It's not a speculative lottery ticket by any means. It was just a, you know, a good business that was compounding at really high rates uh, due to a really strong business model. They were uh, able to just an interesting story. Any- real extra capital as well. That's what's astonishing about them is that it was yeah. just this massive leverage. Yeah, exactly. So I mentioned that in the article. I think that's one of the things uh, when I look for a business, that's what I'm looking for. Something that's in scale and that's sort of capital light and um, able to 
yeah, has some unique edge. So an A2, the business model was something that a lot of people missed because um, it meant that Finlay did all the hard work of kind of scaling up the manufacturing and production and organizing the, the herds to be converted to A2 only protein. Um, and then A2 milk only, only um, still a hard job, but only had to do the marketing and brand and kind of manage mm. the supply chain. And that's more like Coca-Cola in the US. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, they have the bottlers do all the hard work of producing um, Coke, and then they kind of are the marketing brand that owns that. And that that meant that uh, 18 Milk over the last five years only had to invest around nine or ten million dollars in capex, whereas Sinlay uh, has other customers than just A2, so it's not perfect direct comparison. But Sinlay spent about 500, I think 560 million on capex. That difference means that A2 Milk had incredibly high returns on its invested capital because it didn't have to invest too much capital. Mm. And that combined with like a, a, a brand that generated very strong margins um, meant that it, it could kind of compound that flywheel quite aggressively. And they did have other areas they reinvested. They invested heavily in marketing and that was always quite impressive they continued to do. But yeah, it just shows how much of a difference a business model makes and why I spend most of my time thinking about business models. And I guess the question now is, and I've said this before, is what are they going to do with all the cash they generate? Do you think they'll start paying dividends? Will they find more investable opportunities? Will they buy back stock? What 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 do you think will happen then? Yeah, so they have um, another example from the article. When I was buying shares, the whole market cap of the company was around $560 million, and now they've got, I think, $600 million in cash and another couple hundred million owned of Simlay because they own about 19% of Simlay. I think actually though, yeah, they did top up during the during the crash up to like just below the limit where they'd have to launch a takeover, basically. Yeah. Um, I think that they are going to hold the cash, and I so my my thinking there is they are very dependent on Simlay. They're like a, a close partnership with Simlay. They're by far their biggest supplier, and I don't know what percentage it would be. Maybe ninety percent of their supply comes through Simlay. Um, so. The risk would be if something happened, if someone tried to take over Sinlay, and Sinlay has some um, significant Chinese shareholders, um, they could, they, there has always been this threat that um, China kind of makes a play for the whole thing by taking over Sinlay. Um, and so I think that they, that might be what they're thinking is they already own 20% and they're keeping such a huge amount of cash on the balance sheet that they could, if they needed to, easily take over Sinlay, even if the price got bid up. Um, so I think it's a very defensive thing for them, and that's probably why they haven't paid too much. They might start paying a dividend just because they've got so much surplus cash. Um, but yeah, they, they, they could stop any takeover with twenty percent, though, couldn't they? Um, they could stop. Yeah, they could stop certain kinds of take. I think with that, you would be able to buy enough on market easily to stop um, certain kinds of takeover or to challenge and take it over yourself. Might be what their move would be in that scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think that that's part of what's going on there. I don't think they'll acquire too much else. I could be wrong, but I think they're very good at just focusing on what they do. Um, yeah. That makes sense. And what about competition in the space? Because I guess it was a market no one really mm-hmm. considered before, and they've almost slotted into that demand quite nicely. Is, do you think yeah. the competition is a threat to them at all, or do you think they've got big enough now where sort of like Coca-Cola is in soft drinks? It's an interesting one, eh? Because they, their edge was really, um, as I said, kind of the consumer brand and what they did with that. Um, so they've kind of owned the A2 space. And I think some of their competitors 
have a tough time because if now they're big enough that the competitors that would be threatening to them are very large because if they're smaller like me, they outspend them on marketing. So mm. um, it's only the large guys they have to worry about too much. But then the large um, companies can't, well, they're in a unique spot because if they go too hard on the marketing for A2 and it's, you know, purported health benefits, then they're kind of undermining their existing business because yeah. it's obviously saying A2 is better than non-A2 and then you have to explain to your customers what like all of the other milky sellers like. Um, so I think it's kind of like a disruptive innovation, misusing the term slightly, but it means that the competitors have a hard time really going hard at the category. And that's what we've seen so far. Like Nestle launched A2 in China, but they haven't really dented um, A2 Milk's prospects. Um, and so, yeah, I think they kind of own the category. I, there's still a lot of uncertainty, and I, don't, I want to emphasize that. Like, this is re- really built on Chinese mums preferring a2 milk and that is yeah. based on it being a brand that's desired and premium and if there was ever a scandal that would change in, you know potentially instantly um you know chinese regulatory changes could be very um devastating if china just wanted to stop and punish new zealand or australia or if they just decided to pr- promote their own industry so there's a lot of things to watch it's just um, impressive how well they've handled everything so far so i guess in some ways you're saying that because it's milk people mm-hmm. don't want to spend too long understanding you know, if they know if they if, they, if it's in their mind that A2 is a better buy than regular milk, then they'll just buy it. Mm-hmm. They don't even if someone comes across with a competing product that is better. Even mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. branding will mean that people will still go to A2. And I guess you're saying that the regulation in China and I guess internal Chinese trends and everything like that might be more significant than any individual competitor. Yeah, I, I think that you've nailed it there. Yeah, um, yeah. When we were researching A2 and another infant formula company, Bellamy's, um, we, like, we spent a lot of time like going to chemists and checking their supply and supermarkets. And I remember at the time, this was before I had kids, but there was, um, we were standing there like looking at the pins and a mum came in holding a baby with one of her arms and just got to the infant formula aisle and it was like a one-second purchase decision, just reached out and grabbed the formula tin. Um, we kind of asked, you know, why do you prefer this and whatever else. But it just it just shows basically you spend a fair bit of time deciding on what the right formula is. But once you've decided, there's very little chance you want to switch because now now I have uh, two six-month-old twin boys. Definitely appreciate it. Once you've got something that's working, the downside risk of, of switching is very big because um, babies can get upset stomachs and crying and sleepless nights and all the stuff you want to avoid. So if something's working, you don't want to interfere with it too much. So, yeah, I think that that is how they're kind of brand similar to Coke, right? Once you've decided that you're, you like Coke, you don't really think about it too much. You don't debate every time you go, oh, should I have a Pepsi or a Coke? Most mm-hmm. people don't anyway. Um, so yeah, I think that that combines with quite good management where they've always kept the, what they call keeping the channel hungry. So there's never like a surplus of supply anywhere. They always just keep everything quite tight. And that means there's always more demand than supply. And it just keeps it being like a kind of rare um, product or not rare, but like premium. Um, so I think that those, yeah, those are the things to watch is what's happening with Chinese mums. Um, are they still liking this product? Is there something else coming along? But um, itself is still a bit, I mean, as I said, the title of the article, it's gone up 2,200%. So, you know, every dollar becomes $22 over just five years. It's been an incredible amount of um, returns. And I think at the whole, the whole way through though, it's, only traded at you know thirty to forty times earnings, 
Um, and I think when you think about how much, you know, the operating profits are up fifty x or something, and revenues up ten x, so it's a pretty. It's been. I think people thought it was overvalued just because they look at like a thirty five p or wherever it is, and um, I think they missed just how much how long that runway was. And if everything keeps going well, it's still got still got plenty of runway to go. But obviously, you wouldn't expect another twenty two hundred x return from no. here. No, no, I don't think it's going to be another 22. Uh, Yeah, and it's already, it's about, I think about 5 to 6% share of the Chinese market. And Mm. I think at some point, maybe China doesn't want a foreign company being too large of a share, um, even if they could kind of earn their way there. Um, But, you know, brands can get pretty big. So I don't don't think you should rule rule out that it can continue growing for a while. But no, I wouldn't be expecting like another 22. And that's kind of... Yeah, that's kind of our job. Um, writing about is more thinking. It's more about trying to find the next one um, that can do this. Trying to, if you find something when it's a 500 million market cap as this was, it's a lot easier to get that kind of return than finding something once it's already 10 or in this case 14 billion dollars. Um, yeah. I guess the only way you could is if they started buying an, an awful lot of their stock um, and using that to drive up the earnings per share is is much as growth. Yeah. I think it, if a company is starting to do that, it's probably when we'd be already selling because we're really looking for the organic growth. But yeah, that, I mean, that can be a strategy that works well if you kind of get it into financial engineering. Um, mm. I think for me, it's more, we're interested while the business itself is still really growing very fast and, you know, AT still is growing very fast at the moment. Um, but if it started getting into that territory, it'd probably be time to say goodbye um, because they don't have the same opportunities just to invest and grow their own business. So they're expanding in the U.S., Fresh Milk, if they got a meaningful share of Fresh Milk and Infant Formula in the U.S., that's a very big market. So there's still other areas that are growing outside of China, but, yeah, China definitely dominates. Yeah, fair enough. So talking about explosive share price growth, I'm just looking yeah. at a 52-week low um, of push pay at $2.36 per share, which I think was recorded two months ago in March. And mm-hmm. I think it's trading close enough to a 52-week high now of $7.25 per share. Um, so we spoke yeah. about push pay back in February. I think they'd just done the mm-hmm. acquisition, is that right? Or were we speaking about the acquisition at that time? Yeah, um, I think we're speaking about Yeah, I think that's correct. Community yep. church builder. Um, mm-hmm. So what what's happened between now and then with push pay to have a 200% return in that period of time. Yeah, so Pushpay, obviously, is one I've followed for a, a long time. Um, but, you know, church-giving provider, I guess your audience is very familiar with it. Um, I think that before COVID, it was tracking, like, pretty well. And I read in maybe 18 months ago saying that it was transitioning from being a hyper-growth company to being kind of, like, in cash production mode, and it was going to mm. tip into because of the tip pass, that kind of break-even point, it didn't need to spend much more. It was going to generate very large profits. It was going to change from being people who loved extremely high growth to people who liked um, kind of strong, continuous profit growth. So they're kind of two different groups of investors. And I think that's what's part of what had happened. So it was already starting to happen a bit in February as the the share price started coming back up. Um, But then COVID happened. So COVID knocked it down as people kind of saw all the churches have to close their doors. So that's kind of first level thinking as Howard Marks talks about is um you have to you have to shut your doors and you can't um you know, you can't can't hold a service. But then the second level is what does it what does push pay really do? And push pay 
allows you to digitally give remotely and as engagement apps as well that allow you to like watch sermons online and give through that. And so they've actually, so the share price crashed because everyone was very nervous about it. And then it's rallied because they came out and said, actually, this is benefiting us, not hurting us. So it's just that complete 180. And it shows how much, as I was talking about before, how much opportunity there is if you can understand something before the market, because the market, you know, there can be a 180 degree turns on what's happening. Um, mm -hmm. And Pushpay is a great example of bringing forward adoption. So now every church in the U.S. Um, has to think about having online giving. So beforehand, Pushpay was around 5% of the total giving was happening on Pushpay. And, um, you know, the penetration of digital giving was still fairly low because the U.S. is still very bust based on checks and old-fashioned payment methods. And now I think, I mean, you just can't, if you don't have that, you don't get any any inflow of cash as a church. So you have to you have to have it or you don't get anything. And so that, that's a, yeah, that severity of um, outcome means that people are, although total giving might be down or is down because, you know, people are losing their jobs and that kind of thing, it does tend to stay, it, it sticks around pretty well, like it doesn't fall much more than GDP, but the share of the pie that Pushpay is getting is increasing significantly. And I think that a lot of that will stick around. So, yeah, it's bringing forward that adoption curve. A lot of churches that had been like kind of laggards or even, even really the majority of churches it was only the early adopters that had moved to push pay. I think a lot of other churches now are moving across and bringing all their giving online, and that'll have some long-term benefits for push pay. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think it was the results that came out that sort of alerted everyone to that fact, I guess, right? Yeah, they released something a bit earlier that um, just saying, right. like, we're not hurt, looks good, and then the results, like, it was the results in the guidance. The guidance was huge, so... They guided for around 90 to 100% growth in EBITDA, um, mm. and that's largely not due to the acquisition. The acquisition added some EBITDA, but it's mostly just tipping past that point and just the incredible growth that they've seen. So that was a huge upgrade. Um, and, you know, they, I don't know, on a few years, if you look at the numbers from a few years ago, they're kind of like in 2017 when we were buying, they'd be on like six times. DVD, but they're on those earnings and based on the market cap back then. So, yeah, um, yeah, that, the, the numbers are big and they're going to keep getting bigger. And I think that's what people are seeing. So um, it's just a very stable. And the, one of the reasons it's one of the few that I talked about publicly is because it's a very kind of predictable and one of the safer growth companies. So barring any other big change, I think they've got a very good like pathway ahead for fundamental performance. I guess it was a lot safer back in March though, right? At a market cap of it's, a third of what Yeah, it exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, the business is safer. But yeah, I know what you mean. Whatever, <laughs> I just wanted to clarify um, for people that may not Yeah, have. yeah, definitely, definitely. I don't mean, don't mean to say that now. I better you know, do your own research, not, definitely not pitching it to anyone as an investment. But, um, yeah, the business itself is um, fairly sticky, um, and that's that's a, you know, a valuable trait. It's a resilient trait. Um, yeah, so it's a... What, what do you make of the acquisition? It sort of seems to me they paid a lot of money, but a lot of the benefit they want to get from it is because they've essentially purchased a, a database that they can. Sell yeah, they've purchased a database with some trust, yes. with some trust as well, which helps. Um, I think the cross sells the the real upside. Um, mm. I think it's okay. I think it was yeah, it was, it was expensive. I think. Um, Thankfully, because they're generating so much more EBITDA now, they've still got a lot of firepower for more acquisitions. And 
on the last earning call, I was kind of pitching <laughs> pitching them a little bit that they could make a, another acquisition more in kind of one of the fake software companies that had been hurt hard um, because although Pushpay is doing better, not all of them will be. So particularly um, like event software. So there's a lot of church events and there's some software that helps people manage that. Um, Brushfire is one example I talked about before. And I think that that business will probably be hurt pretty badly because there's not any in-person events happening. And maybe this could be, um, maybe there won't be such lofty over the top multiples as we've been seeing previously. It could be a good opportunity to kind of make a deal. But um, yeah, we'll see what happens. Did the CEO leaving and the other founder, Elliot, leaving cause you any reason for concern or? Did you just see it? A as little, I guess. Yeah, understandable. It, it kind of it kind of reflected what had changed in the business because it had gone from being, it was you know when I first came across Pushbay in 2016, it was literally like one of the fastest growing businesses in Asia. It was on some list of fast 50 or something, um, and now it's much except for coronavirus accelerating things is much more steady, still high growth, but not not hyper growth. Um, and I think that that might that partly reflects that they've got um you know there's a bit of a difference i guess between the type of ceo you want to have for that and the type that you want for a more stable steady business which is able to you know focus on generating cash flow so yeah i think it's i always prefer founder-led businesses so it's it's not uh, it's a negative but it's not um particularly negative given the kind of context of it happening for me yeah i mean i sort of feel like um I could be off the mark here, so I'll just disclaim that before I say this. But it'd be sort of like my pizza business suddenly being worth my ownership in that suddenly being worth a hundred million dollars in a very short period of time, you know, a few years essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, it would probably burn a bit of a hole in my pocket as well. <laughs> yeah, I think people—it's too easy to judge that. that. If you're sitting on the sideline. How dare, how dare um, someone own, you know, sell some shares? Um, when they have a hundred percent of their net worth tied up in this business, or sometimes more than that, um, if, they're, if they're leveraged in some way. So yeah, I think I think it's not. I don't know. I kind of feel for those guys who get attacked if they sell down from being like a hundred percent concentrated oh, in their business definitely. to eighty like, percent concentrated. Everyone's like, ah, oh, what are you what are you doing? So yeah, I think it'd be a bit Definitely. Like I mean, people. I I think people that criticise them for that can't put themselves in their shoes. Um, you know, like cause I would be, yeah. Yeah. And those people, do would do you have like a hundred percent in, in push pay? And no, of course they would say no. It's not prudent to have that much. Maybe they have five percent or ten percent or something. You know. Um. So yeah, I, I think it's I don't know, it's easy to judge um, from the outside, particularly if you didn't come from money and the first time you've earned something, you want to do some stuff with it. So yeah, I don't I don't have too much of a negative view on that for sure. That's why guys like, I guess, Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos are so unique in, in a way that they just stay, and Elon Musk as well, and you know anyone mm-hmm. like that, that, Elon Musk is probably the most impressive in my view um, in terms of the, the bets he makes and the swings he takes. Um, yeah. Remain so committed to those yeah. causes, you know? Well, not causes, but to yeah. those companies when they could just literally... Buy a huge luxury yacht and sail off to this into the sunset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess it's a different motivation thing, but um, yeah. yeah, maybe that's why. If you're the type of guy that wants the huge luxury yacht and sail off, maybe you're not the type that 
that gets to build the hundred billion dollar business. So, that's that's um, correct. I'm probably yeah. I'm probably more somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yeah, that, but, and I'm yeah. sure those people in their personal lives are somewhere in the middle as well. It's just a small yeah. a luxury yeah. yacht. It's just a small percentage of their net worth. Um, yeah. What what about? Do you have any other maybe? I mean, we're, we're talking about companies retrospectively in some ways at the moment. Do you have any smaller companies that you're able to talk about on your radar that may have similar characteristics? I've got my pen and paper ready. <laughs> <laughs> we're uh, we're actually opening, so we're launching the fund uh, in about 10 days or so on June 1st. So um, I'll probably keep those under my hat for <laughs> the smaller yeah. companies. Well, in that case, tell me about the funding. I think we, we, I'm not sure if we mentioned on the last podcast, but you've been working, well, since I've been speaking to you, really, about setting up up a fund, and now Mm -hmm. it's about to come to fruition. I mean, tell me about that. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's pretty exciting. So it's um, the Maven Smaller Companies Fund investing in smaller Australia and New Zealand companies, just kind of like the strategy I always talk about is trying to find big dominant companies of tomorrow where they're still small. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's the goal. And yeah, I'll be investing Australia and New Zealand uh, listed companies and some up to 10% can be into pre IPO companies, which can be quite interesting as well. Um, and yeah, just all the, all the traits I look for. So pretty exciting. Um, launching, yeah, as I said, June 1st. So um, just open for applications at the moment and. Yeah, if anyone wants to learn more, they can um, go and register their interest at uh, mavenfund.com.au, M-A-V-E-N funds.com.au. And yeah, it's just an exciting time. Got a lot of um, investors that have been following and interested in what we're doing for a long time. And yeah, it's exciting to be able to get started. So that's your own fund. You're running yourself. You're making your own investment decisions. Um, anyone can invest in it or is it, how, how does it work? Yeah, it's open to... Yeah, correct. It's open to anyone in New Zealand and Australia. Um, obviously, read the product disclosure statement and decide if it's if it's right for you. Um, but yeah, it's open to everyone. It's um, Maven Funds Management is the company uh, that I've founded and chief investment officer of that will be operating the fund. Um, yeah, and so yeah, I'm just excited to. I'll, I'll be investing the fund too at launch. Um, my, myself and my family's money. So yeah, it's an exciting time to. Exciting time to get started and all the, all the stuff that I was talking about, about um, companies that are, you know, resilient and, and, and bringing forward adoption and all that kind of stuff. It's a pretty interesting time to look for those. So, yeah. Fantastic. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's exciting times. Exciting times. We've been talking about it for a while, so it's cool to If you started. had to make a prediction on where we would be in six months or a year's time with I guess COVID nineteen. Let's face it; it's what we're all thinking about. Um, mm-hmm. What? Where, where do you think we'll be as an economy, as countries, as mm-hmm. investors? Yeah. What, what do you think we'll be looking at? Because um, Warren Buffett, the reason I'm saying is yeah. Warren Buffett. If you watched his Berkshire Hathaway meeting the other day, it was a bit of a unique meeting. We've got to go to that next yeah. year, but if we can, um, yeah. <laughs> <he's been> the <laughs> first hour. First hour talking, pretty much the first hour talking about how back in the 1930s the market bounced back really strongly before the Great Depression really kicked in. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And he seemed he seemed quite focused on the small tail risk of something really bad happening. 
it seemed to be attributing a low probability to it that he wanted to be prepared for it if it was happening. Um, so if you had to make some predictions about where we would be, I'm not going to make any because I've been wrong all the way through. But you, <laughs> you've, you've been able to call it pretty correctly. I mean, what, what, what do you think? No, yeah, I, I, I think once every five or ten years, I might have some view of some macro thing, and that was probably February, and probably not now. I think it's very, there's very so many uncertain forces. I think some on the virus. I think New Zealand will probably completely eradicate it within the next few weeks and will become a green zone. I think New Zealand and Australia will become close to there. And I think the world will separate into green zones and, and orange or red zones. And I think um, so New Zealand will be well positioned, I think, for that. I think that other countries like the US uh, won't, unfortunately, be in a similar position. So I could see that this being an ongoing ongoing thing there. I think they'll open and then they'll, they won't bounce back to the same kind of occupancy levels for quite a while because even if the government is saying it's okay, I think people will be kind of concerned about the risks to their health um, because, yeah, the risks are, yeah, I think it's becoming more apparent that you don't want to get this virus. It's not just that you can kind of survive it. It can also have long-term health impacts, even if you do. So I think people will be very um, reluctant to do that. I think for that reason, a lot of international travel will be not reappearing for quite a while. Um, and I think the real difference will be if we get a vaccine that works, but I don't think that will be happening anytime soon. Um, I follow a super forecasting tournament um, from the book Super Forecasting Good Judgment Project, and all the super forecasters, so I'll, I'll defer to their judgment more than me, are not expecting a vaccine. And um, I think the earliest would be like March 2021 if everything goes well, and that would still be many, many years ahead of um, when we've ever got a vaccine working before, so I think it's going to be a, I think it's going to be a, a, a bit of a slog, to be honest. Like I, I watched all of that Berkshire Hathaway meeting as well, and it was pretty interesting um, to see his caution. And I think as investors, you just need to be really thoughtful about what you're investing in. And as I said, having a business focus, really thinking about what makes a business tick, its business model, is it resilient to handle different stuff that's going on. And I think if you try and get into predicting where the market's going. I think you're just going to do your head in because it's, it's so uncertain at the moment. Um, yeah, I think that's where we're, where do we're at. Do you think, though, that in that scenario where it might be eradicated in New Zealand but still causing severe problems in the United States, for example, there's the old saying that, you know, if there's going to be a recession in the United States, there's going to be a recession everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that I don't know. I, I just I just worry about the rest of the world having it and just cracking on with life. And and New Zealand and Australia stuck down at the bottom, not really having it, but not really being able to participate either. You know. Yeah, that, that, I understand what you I mean. Keep keep on going back to. Yeah, I think it's it's not going to be. I think the fun that the economy is. The, the tricky thing with the market, why it's so why I don't try and get into predictions, is that it can look through all of that as long as it has a clear enough idea of what's happening and it can see a, a path out the other side. What the market can't deal with is when it doesn't know what's going to happen or has uncertainty. So if we knew for sure what was going to happen, I think the market would respond to that instantly and then it would just kind of rise like normal from there. Um, but yeah, you're right. The fundamental economy is it's going to be it's going to be pretty tricky. There will be some though that. Uh, absolutely benefiting from this. If you're providing a service, particularly in the US, which relies on kind of digital adoption, and there are some companies that are doing that, Pushbay being one potentially, but a lot of others, 
um, then this could be the greatest. This could this could bring forward like five years, ten years of demand um, into a product category. So, yeah, there's going to be. I think it's just a time to be really smart about what you're doing and um, not try to focus too much on the economy because, you know, there's another good example during the GFC where if you looked at unemployment, unemployment was still rising until I want to say like December 2009. But if you if you'd waited until then, you would have missed a rally in the share market of like 60% or something mm. um, because the market bottomed in March 2009 and the market can look forward through a lot of stuff once it has a path of... Well, yeah, exactly. Because if you look at actually valuation, value, valuing a company or valuing the market, the next year's mm-hmm. earnings is only a small part of the valuation. Yeah, correct. And I think at a market level, that's very true. I think we, that's a good example of where we need to be careful at like company level because mm. if a company's hurting it can also lose its competitive position and um, the, that one bad year could be so bad that it could cause real problems. But yeah, I definitely agree. I think um, if you're doing a proper DCF of the whole market, then kind of one year isn't a very big impact. Um, so, and especially yeah. if, and the, then, if one of the consequences is extremely low interest rates. Yeah, extremely low interest rates and extremely high stimulus. So those those two yeah, together. Um, yeah, lots of... Too much to try and I think that's why it's impossible to try and predict too much there. I think it's just being adaptable and being resilient to what what can come. Exactly. Well, is there anything you'd like to end the podcast on? Obviously, check out your website. What was the address? Uh, Maven Funds. M A V E N F U N D S dot com dot au. And yeah, check us out. Um, I'd, I'd recommend checking out uh, Calamero Pizza in St Helier's if you haven't tried that one before. I'd recommend that as well. (laughs) (laughs) I hope everything's going well for you, Jeremy. And yeah, really appreciate um, jumping on the podcast. Always good to chat and yeah, happy to come back anytime. Cool. We'll talk, we'll no doubt have you on again soon. Awesome. All right. Thanks very much, Jeremy. See you later. Right, as you can hear, that's where the, the conversation ended. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Remember to, to check out Maven Funds for Matt. Um, thanks again for listening in. As a reminder that nothing that I said today should be considered financial advice. If you're looking to find out more about the podcast, go to stockmarketmovers.co.nz or find us and give us a like on Facebook. Share it with your friends also. If you want to email me, it is jeremy at stockmarketmovers.co.nz. Once again, my name is Jeremy Medlin and this has been episode 86 of the Stock Market Movers podcast for Saturday, the 23rd of May, 2020. We'll see you all again next week.